Well, welcome here. It's good to have you all here. A special welcome to those in the simulcast. It's very good to have you here as well. Uh, my name is Stefan Dirksen. For those of you who don't know me, I am the pastor of the Four Winds Ministry. There's some pretty amazing things happening there, isn't there? Right? We're going to see lives transformed. I get so excited about this. I mean, the building is great, but I get excited about the vision behind that. There's going to be people that are going to surrender their lives to Jesus and be transformed. Right? Isn't that incredible? This is what it's all about, right? I know many of you have given very faithfully, and I thank you for that. And, uh, and that's what we're giving for. I mean, we're giving for a building, yeah, but we're giving to see the kingdom impacted, aren't we? Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah. All right. Last week, I had, uh, um, I had given you a, a tip for motion sickness. Do you remember that? I had said to do this. Well, <laughs> what I had, I had a bunch of people point this out to me. I hadn't realized it, but apparently the guy on the PowerPoint was doing that for my entire message. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, eh? That was totally not intentional, but we've had people right up to this week that have been mentioning that to me. So uh, anyways, uh, last week I started by uh, laying a foundation for the importance of repentance. And uh, what I had said was, although many believers, are, or pretty much all believers, are familiar with the term repentance, I said that uh, uh, there's still a, a whole bunch that don't actually know what repentance means, and also how important or necessary it is in the lives of a believer. So what I had begun by saying was I had said that uh, I had defined repentance. I had said biblical repentance means a change of mind followed by regret, followed by a change of conduct. Right? And then I had given you three reasons that repentance was important. In fact, not only important, that it was necessary in the lives of all believers. And the first one was it is necessary for forgiveness of sins. Repentance was necessary to mature in our faith. And repentance was necessary for salvation. Now, if, if, if you'll recall, then from there, we also, though, talked about, so we have that definition now, change of mind, followed by regret, followed by change of conduct, but we also talked about, even within that now, Scripture still talks about two kinds of repentance, one leading to life and the other to death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So we still have the two kinds of repentance to sort through so that we can get our promised inheritance, right? So we still got to figure this thing out. And uh, this is actually really important that we figure this out. You might think, well, as long as I turn from sin, then that's all that God cares about. But that's not, that's not actually true. It's not what the scriptures teach, right? And considering what an opposite place that they can bring us, we want to make sure that we're repenting with godly sorrow and that we're turning to God in a way that is pleasing to him, right? So during the, uh, when I was talking about maturing in our faith last week, I had mentioned that I have, I've seen many believers who get stuck in sin and bondage and they can't seem to break free. And I had said that ultimately this was due to a lack of true repentance within their lives. And uh, these same believers may often think that they're doing everything they can to repent, right? They're taking all these steps, but we see no heart change. Nothing seems to be different, right? Over, over the length of time. And I've talked to multiple men that have dealt with the uh, bondage of pornography. It's prevalent in our society. It's, it's huge. It's unfortunate. Uh, but I've talked to many men that struggle there that have felt like they have repented, where they've said, well, I've done this. I've, you know, put the password on the internet, and I've, you know, gotten rid of my laptop or gotten rid of my phone so I can no longer access it. But then they tell me, but my heart hasn't changed. I still lust all the time. And it's like, if, so if I can't see it in front of my face, then I'm just seeing it in my mind, and there's no heart change, and it feels hopeless. Right? And they'll tell me how they've repented, but many times, I'm not saying in every case, this is just an example, right? But many times then when we've looked at their lives, what we find is they don't actually find their source of life in the Word or, or in God. They may do their devotions, but they're dry or they're spotty or they're missing from time to time, right? It's not a huge priority within their lives. And then what you'll find is, you know, things like video games or movies or TV, now this is just one example, right? These things are like their source of life. Right, so they turn to this for their source of life, and then they wonder why, well, I, t I turn from this sin, but I can't change my heart. See, Matthew 6, 21 says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. It's not good enough to just want to get rid of the negative parts of your sin. It's not good enough. You have to address the position of your heart. It has to begin there, or you will never actually see change. Worldly repentance and godly repentance on the outside can look very much the same. They can. They can look very much the same. It's when we look and examine, we look at and examine our heart motives that we're going to find out whether we've gotten it right or wrong. This is what the scriptures teach us. And, and I'll add to that by saying we can actually deceive ourselves on the matter. And I've been here and I've talked to men who were there where they've thought, I've done everything I can to repent, 
right? But you can see they haven't actually turned to God, right? But Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. As you see here, I mean, the human heart is deceitful and wicked, right? Our hearts will try to deceive us on this matter because our heart is, I mean, our flesh doesn't want us to get it right. But there's hope in this passage as well, isn't there? I mean, the hope is God says that I see your heart. I see the secret motives of your heart. I know what's driving you in your life. I see that. And, and the great thing is, it also says in Scripture, if we ask Him to examine our hearts, if we ask Him for wisdom, it says that He is happy to give it. So there's great hope in this as well. Our hearts may deceive us, but God won't. If we, if we pursue Him, He will reveal to us the desires of our hearts. It says Psalms 139, 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is where we're going to begin today by allowing God to examine our heart motives. Right? We'll look at the posture of our heart and from there we're going to, we're going to really break down how do we get godly sorrow so that we can repent in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So bow your heads with me and we'll pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you are sovereign and that you are good. And uh, God, last night, me and my wife, we went out to the field across from our home and we were looking at that big storm coming in and seeing all the lightning and the thunder and it was just magnificent. And we sat there and just felt so small with such a huge sky and all this thunder and lightning and just recognizing that you are God over all of this and you are in control of all of that. And then that realization just begins to sink in. In Genesis it says that you walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. So this same God who is in charge of these powerful storms, who is in charge of all things, this same God desires to walk with us, to live life with us. God, the desire of my heart is that you would, that you would bring us to a place where we would see that and desire to get rid of anything in our lives that would stand in the way. This is really the heart of repentance. So I ask God that you would give us your heart this morning on repentance. And that we would respond to you in a way that is pleasing. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so the first step to getting our heart motives right before the Lord is having a reality check on where we're actually at with our hearts, right? As I showed you in Jeremiah, our hearts will try to deceive us on the matter. So what we're going to do is look at three questions that will help you determine the posture of your heart. Right? So these questions are going to help you. So look at three indicators. And the first one is, are you willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of sin within your life? Are we willing? This question is very telling about the position of our heart. Think about this. I mean, God, like I said, He wants to walk with us. He wants, to, he wants an intimate relationship with us. And He says our sins have separated us from Him. Right? When, when we see that, if our heart is set on God, the natural response should be to remove whatever is necessary so that we can have that union once more. Right? Doesn't that make sense? This is what happens in marriage. When, before I got married, this is, I'll just share something with you, don't, whatever. But before I got married, I used to leave my gitch on the floor after, after I took a shower. I thought I'll clean it up tomorrow or the next day or whatever, but I'll get there. Or when it's a big enough pile, then you deal with it, right? Well, I got married and I realized that was offensive to my wife. So I stopped doing it, right? I mean, so there's things that changed in my life and these new values that were imposed on me that became important to me because I love and care for my wife. You see how that works? That's a very small and, and imperfect picture, but that's the same as, as when we're serving God. If our hearts are focused on Him, getting rid of sin should be quite natural. So are we willing to do everything it takes? If we have relationships that are causing us to fall into sexual impurity, sexual immorality, or other sins, are we willing to cut these things off? What about if Facebook or Twitter or blogs or internet pornography becomes a huge snare to us? What if it's consuming our time and, and dominating our hearts and thoughts? Are we willing to get rid of these things so that we can be holy unto God? Or anger or bitterness, you know, or a host of other addictions, these things that plague us. Are we willing to, to give these things over to God and trust Him and then go and confess to someone else and be held accountable on a process of healing? 
See, all these questions are very revealing to us on what the true focus of our heart really is. Okay, if we're focused on ourselves, it's going to be very hard to let go of the sin within your life. Right? You'll be willing to get rid of the parts that hurt, but then the other things you're just going to hold on to tightly. But when we've set our hearts and our minds on God, it becomes quite natural. You just want to be close to Him, and you don't want to do whatever it takes to be close to Him. That's just how it works. Matthew 5, 29-30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Scripture is very clear in the matter. Very clear if it's causing you to sin, cut it off. Get rid of it. Do something. Deal with it now. And I'll give you another passage, Amos 5.14. This has been a favorite verse of mine for many years. God gave it to me the first time I, I went through reading through the Scriptures. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you've claimed. I think many times we get this backwards, don't we? Right? We want to claim God as our helper and he's our Lord. And just, God, why don't you give me the strength to do this and the strength to do that? And why don't you rescue me from my situation? And then we say, if you do that, then I would do all the good things you're asking me to do. Then I would, you know, turn away from evil. But you've got to help me first. Well, first off, he already did help you. He died for you. But second off, look what Scripture says. You do good. Do your part for righteousness and run from evil. He says, then, at that point, I will be your helper just as you've claimed. It's an incredible promise. We've got to get it right. If it causes us to sin, if it leads us into temptation, Scripture says, cut it off, run away, deal with it. All right, let's look at the next one. Once again, this is all about the posture of your heart. Is your love for God visible in everything that you do? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 38, and he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now this is pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? Right? All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Do you think if we actually loved that way, do you think it would be visible to everyone else around us? I think so. To me, that sounds like we're commanded to love him in absolutely everything that we do. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. There's many things that we're commanded to do without, with the, like without, throughout the scriptures, right? I mean, are we following through on those things? But let's just pick one. One of the things we're commanded to do is to love as he has loved. John 15, 13, Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Great love like this requires great sacrifice. Are our lives a testimony that we are living in the power of great love? That we are giving great love? Can you see it with the great sacrifice that we give? Is your love for God visible in everything that you do? Let's look at the next one. If you died today, what would you be remembered for? Now, this may seem like a morbid question, but actually, in Scripture, we see, Lord, remind me of how brief my time is here on earth. So I actually think a question like this is godly, and it's good. Now, are we going to be remembered for the things we said were important, or the things we did that showed what was important? Actions speak a lot louder than words, don't they? So reflect on your life, even now. Allow the Holy Spirit to stir. What would you be remembered for? Would your friends and family, would they talk about how you were a great man and woman of faith? Would they testify of your love? Your love for God, how it was seen through your love for others? Your generosity? Would they talk about how when, even when you made a mistake, you were quick to pick yourself back up, to turn from it, and to be reconciled to those who were offended with you? You know, would your employers or employees or your coworkers? Would they, would they remi remember you as being a person of godly character? Someone who it was quite evident that they were serving Jesus and that they meant it by the way that they lived, by the way they responded, by their relationships, by how they conducted themselves. So what is the legacy that we're leaving behind? We look at questions like this and say, well, what is the point What's the point of these questions? Godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, how does it relate? 
Well, answering these questions honestly will help you see if your focus is truly on Jesus or not. They're going to show you the posture of your heart. And the posture of your heart is absolutely everything when determining how you're going to repent. If you're not focused on God, you're not going to repent for godly sorrow. Right? If you're focused on yourself, you're going to feel bad about your sin because of how it affects you, period. It's just how it works. In Scripture, we actually see a great example of how this works out, you know, where we see the posture of the heart playing through to the end of their lives. We see it when we contrast the lives of Peter and Judas. All right? Now, Peter and Judas, I talk about them, and right away we think, one good, one bad, right? Simple case, I mean, they're, they're both cut from the opposite cloth. They were nothing the same. But what I found is, actually, when examining their lives, that there's actually many similarities. Many similarities. What defined them as different was the posture of their heart, who they lived for. That's what defines them as different. I mean, when we look on the outside, remember what I said, worldly repentance, godly repentance on the outside can look the same. I mean, we look at Peter and Judas. Both men were disciples of Jesus. Both would have claimed that they loved Jesus. Now we say, well, Judas, no, he was a betrayer. He wouldn't have loved Jesus. Let me ask you this. Did he not also leave everything to follow Jesus? I mean, you don't think that he would have said that he loved Jesus? Of course he would have said he loved Jesus. Right? Both men are, we know both men made many mistakes. Both men eventually betrayed Jesus. Not just Judas. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Peter betrayed him by denying him three times during Jesus' mock trial. But what are these men remembered for? What is the legacy that they left behind? This is what we're going to look at now. We're going to start with the life of Judas. Like I said, he was a disciple of Jesus, but we all remember him to be the villain, right? He's the villain. And Scripture agrees with that, and that's why we think that. When, uh, right from the first time he's mentioned in Matthew 10, it's going through the list of apostles, and it gets to, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, right? I mean, the guy's remembered as a villain right from the get-go. But the thing is, so we remember him as the betrayer, but the posture of his heart was off well before he got to the place of actually betraying Jesus. It says in, in uh, John 12 that he was a lover of money and he was a dishonest man. He was a thief. In John 12, we have Mary. She takes a pound of, of ointment and perfume and she's anointing Jesus and, and wiping his feet with her hair. And it says that Judas is indignant. He's upset. And he says, why wouldn't we have sold that for 300 denarii and we could have given it to the poor? Now we look here and say, well, that doesn't sound all that bad. Right? I mean, he's caring about the poor. That sounds like a good heart. But Scripture goes on to say that Judas didn't really care about the poor people. Judas was a lover of money. Judas was in charge of the money, and he used to help himself to whatever was put into that bag. Judas was just looking for another way to get a little bit more for himself. So you see, Judas's love of money, his focus on himself, is what actually led him to do the unthinkable. It didn't just, he didn't just wake up one day and decide, I'm going to betray Jesus. Right in Matthew 26, that's exactly what he did. He says, Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests and he says, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? And they've struck a deal right there for 30 pieces of silver and it says from that moment on he was seeking a chance to betray Jesus. Now a little bit further in, in Matthew 26, um, Jesus is saying, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now all of them are going, going through the list there and saying, not I, Lord, and Lord, is it I and is it me? Would I do that? And Jesus responds by saying, the one who dips his hand into the dish with me, he is the one who will betray me. And then he goes on to say, and woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. For it would have been better had he never been born. It's a stiff warning, isn't it? And Judas responds to this warning by saying, Lord, is it I? And Jesus says, you have said so. So now think about this. Judas, before he actually went through with the deed, he hasn't actually done it yet. He's just struck the deal. Jesus gives him a stiff warning saying, if you are the one doing it, I know it's you, and if you do this, a terrible fate awaits you. Does Judas respond to this warning? No, he doesn't. It says he just gets up and goes out to do what he had set in his heart to do. You see how this works? Because Judas's heart wasn't postured towards Jesus. He was unable to hear a warning, although it was spoken directly to his face. His heart was already hard. He couldn't hear that warning. I think there's probably Christians today that have wondered, you know, when we get into uh, certain circumstances and we get ourselves into a bind, we say, God, why didn't you tell me beforehand? And you look at scriptures like this and we wonder, 
Maybe he did tell us. Maybe our hearts weren't postured to be hearing. I don't know. Well, let's go a little further with the story here. It says, while he was speaking, now Judas came, one of the twelve, with a great crowd with swords and clubs. And he says, I'm gonna, the one who I kiss, he is the man, arrest him. And he goes to Jesus, gives him a kiss. And Jesus, I love his response, friend, do what you came here to do. And they, it says they laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Now Judas's heart was hard. He had now done the unthinkable. I mean, now the betrayal is complete. But did you know that after this, Judas actually repented? Judas repented. That's what it says in Matthew 27, 3-4. Then when Judas, the, uh, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Is this not repentance? Is not repentance a change of mind followed by regret, followed by a change of conduct? Is this not exactly what we read happened to Judas? Did he not change his mind? Did he not regret what he did? He changed his conduct? The problem was he never turned to God. Do you see that? It's worldly sorrow. He was consumed by his own sin, his own guilt, his shame. And it says in verse 5, in throwing down the pieces of silver, change of conduct, he departed and he went and hung himself. This should be a wake-up call to all of us, shouldn't it? To guard the posture of our heart. To make sure that we're really living for who we say we're living for. All right, that's looking at Judas. So why don't we take a look at the life of Peter now. And what you're going to find with Peter is Peter demonstrates for us godly sorrow played right out to the end. You're going to see a beautiful contrast here. Peter had a, was a man after God's own heart as well. I mean, he made many mistakes, but what do we, what do we remember Peter for? I mean, we all know that he put his foot in his mouth a bunch of times, and we know he made mistakes, but we remember Peter, he's remembered for his faith, right? He's remembered for faith, he's remembered for his love for God, and oh boy, is he ever remembered for the work he did for the church after Jesus ascended, right? I mean, Peter did some pretty great things, didn't he? But let's look at the story that unfolds from the beginning till then, okay? We have in the first mention of Peter, we have Jesus is teaching a, a crowd, and uh, the crowd's kind of overwhelming him, and he gets an idea to go into a boat so that he can kind of step back and be able to uh, preach to more people. So Simon Peter has come back from fishing all night, hasn't caught a thing, and he kind of comes in there, and Jesus, Jesus asks to use his boat. Peter says yes. So they go out onto the water, and now Jesus begins to teach all the people. So Peter would have been listening, and it says, after Jesus was finished teaching, Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, Simon Peter, cast your net onto the other side of the boat. Peter responds by saying, we, we toiled all night and caught nothing. But it says, at the word of the Lord, he obeyed and he cast out his net. So what happens next? Well, they throw down the nets and immediately they're so full of fish, right, that they have to call in another fishing boat and they need two boats to actually take in the catch because it's so large. Right, look what's just happened here. Jesus just blessed Peter financially. Peter's a fisherman. He's just given him the best catch of his life. Now remember, Judas was also blessed financially. He was given charge over the money. But Judas allowed that money to go into his heart. It became his idol. He began to serve it. He loved it. Now let's look how, how Peter responds to a financial blessing in Luke 5 verse 8. But when Simon, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see how beautiful his heart is right from the start? Right? Here he gets the best catch of his life and all he can think of is, I'm not worthy of such a blessing. Right? God, leave me. I'm, I'm too sinful. You, you have to depart. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Right? You contrast that with Judas. These are two different men. The posture of their hearts are differently, are different, sorry, right? So, Matthew 14, we have another famous story with Peter in there. We have the disciples are on a boat and there's a storm raging and then Jesus comes walking in water and freaks them out. And uh, they're kind of wondering, is that a ghost? Like, there's some dude in the water, right? So you're looking at it, they're kind of scared, and they start figuring out that it might be Jesus. And Peter cries out, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come, right? So what does Peter do? He jumps out of the boat, does the cra crazy guy that he is, right? And jumps on the water, and he starts walking to Jesus, right? And he's like, this is great, I'm walking to Jesus. All I, his focus is on Jesus. And then suddenly he remembers that he's also not on, on land anymore or on a boat, and he's in the water, and there's waves and stuff around him. It's still a storm. So it says that he felt fear and doubt, and he began to sink. So he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. 
And it says, Jesus reached down and grabbed me and said, Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? So here, once again, though, you see the beautiful heart of Peter. Like, you see, despite, you know, his fear and his doubt and making many mistakes, Peter's heart and his mind, it was set on Jesus. Right? So he, he, you know, he had faith in the beginning, then his fear and doubt took over. But even then, once that took over, he knew who to call out to, didn't he? Right? He put his eyes and put his mind back on Jesus, right? That's what it's all about. Get my, my page here. So, yeah, we see Peter struggling to get it right and to learn everything Jesus was teaching. In fact, if you'll notice many times throughout the Gospels, when it says the disciples were asking Jesus questions about parables that he would say or teachings that he would give, if you look, almost half the time it's Peter. Peter's the one asking. Lord, what did you mean by this? And, and, and is this what you meant? Or how did you, right? Peter's always trying to figure it out. He's always trying to get it right. We know in Matthew 16 then, you know, we get the famous, Jesus is asking them, who do you say that I am to, to the disciples? You know, one says a prophet and one says Elijah. And then Peter, right? Peter comes out with a doozy and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And we say, wow, eh? It's paying off, Peter. The posture of your heart, it's paying off. You're getting revelation, and Jesus is now encouraging you, right? I mean, this is good. Until a few verses later, when Jesus predicts his own death, and Peter thinks, well, you know, he's just gotten this encouragement. You know, I'm on a roll here. And now I'm going to go and correct my Lord and Savior Jesus and I'm going to bring him aside and rebuke him tell him that he's wrong. And he's, <laughs> oops, <laughs> right? He says, far be it from you, Lord, this thing should never happen. Now what does Jesus say this time? Does he encourage him? Oh no. He says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not putting your mind on the things of God, rather on the things of man. What is Jesus addressing here? The posture of his heart. Right? You see how it goes? You know, we feel like we're doing good. Peter felt like he was doing good. And then it's easy to start trusting in your own ability again. And he says, now your mind's going on the things of man. You get it back on God now. Right? You're in a dangerous place. But we know Peter responds to that each time. He responds and then comes back and keeps pursuing the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Oh, Peter's great. But we know his story isn't done yet. Peter still has to betray Jesus. So now Jesus is predicting uh, Peter's betrayal, you know, it starts with Peter saying, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. <laughs> Peter, once again, you're like, oh, things of God, not things of man, Peter. <laughs> right? But, you know, this is Peter. And then Jesus responds by saying, truly I say to you that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now remember, Judas was also warned of his impending betrayal of Jesus, wasn't he? But Judas's posture was set on the things of man, not on God. He was set on himself, right? He was looking at money. Judas was unable to hear the warning. Peter, on the other hand, he hears the warning because his mind is postured towards God. You see how that works? It's a big difference. Now, he then responds again with a bit of a fleshy comment, stating something that he wasn't able to actually go through on. He says, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you, right? So, I mean, once again, you see he's getting it right, but sort of, right? I mean, he's getting it right, he's moving in the right direction. So, we know, though, that Peter ended up did betraying Jesus, didn't he, right? So, uh, once Jesus is going through the mock trial, then we have the servant girl and another, another man, and then the servant girl, again, is, a, is confronting him and saying, I'm sure you must be one of those Naz- Nazarenes. You must be one of those followers of Jesus. And it says, this time Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And the second he was done saying that, it says, the rooster crowed, and Peter immediately knew what he had done. He had betrayed his Lord and Savior three times, just like Jesus had said. And it says, he left immediately and went and wept bitterly. Now we look at that and say, well, that's a good response. He feels sorrow. That's good, right? You should feel sorrow. You'd deny Jesus. But remember, Judas also felt sorrow, didn't he? Just feeling sorrow isn't good enough, right? Will Peter respond like Judas? And be consumed now by his sin and by his betrayal and by his guilt, right? And go and and turn towards himself? Or will Peter still in humility seek the Lord and seek his Savior? Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, we have, uh, he's appearing to different apostles and disciples and Mary and stuff. And uh, in John 21, it records, you know, the disciples, Peter's with them. They're in a boat and they're fishing again. Going back to fishing, they realize he's a failure, right? And uh, Jesus is on the shore and cries out, children, have you caught any fish? And they yell back, no. So he yells back, 
Throw your, cast your nets out on the right side and you will catch fish. So once again, they obey. Is this sounding familiar already? Sounding familiar, right? So once again, they obey and they pull in a huge catch. And then it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter at this point, it is the Lord. Now look at how Simon Peter responds to the Lord. Is he going to turn away or is he going to turn towards him? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. You see this? Despite his sin, despite his betrayal, despite his shortcomings, his response to seeing Jesus is, I can't even wait for the boat to land. He puts on his clothes, which is a weird thing to do before you jump in the water. He puts on his clothes because it's not decent to stand before Jesus with your shirt off, right, I guess. And then he jumps in the water, swims to shore so he can be with Jesus. Do you see the posture of his heart? It is so purely set on God, despite his shortcomings. This is exactly what God is looking for out of each one of us as well. He knows you're going to make mistakes. He knows you're going to fall. It's in the scriptures. All fall short of his glorious standard. What he's looking for is a posture of the heart that is humble, that, through, that in humility will, will get down on their knees and say, God, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm going to pursue you anyways. Right? I know I've sinned now the same thing a hundred times, but in humility, I'm going to confess this thing and I'm turning to you because you're my only hope. That's what God is looking for from each one of us. A few verses later, we see Peter and Jesus dialoguing with each other and it's beautiful. Peter had denied Jesus three times. Right, this is a famous passage of scripture here. Now Jesus is going to restore him. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And then a second time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And now a third time Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. You see, Peter, look at that. He will have known he denied three times. And even when Jesus is now confronting him on his betrayal, he won't turn away. Right? Jesus, you know I love you. I know my actions don't show it. But I love you and I'm still looking for you. I still want you more than anything in my life. And what happened with Peter after that? Jesus restored him as a disciple and we know he went on to do great exploits for the church and for the kingdom of God. Peter models for us godly repentance. This is what it looks like and it starts with the correct posture of your heart. So, now we can, so how do we ensure now that our lives will respond to Jesus with godly repentance like a Peter instead of worldly repentance like a Judas? Well, earlier in this message, I asked you three questions that were supposed to be indicators of the current posture of your heart. Remember, posture is everything, right? We saw Peter and Judas's posture and how that played out and turned out for them. These questions are meant to show us that we're not always living to the high calling and high standards of our Lord and Savior. That's what they're meant to do. I mean, we should all be able to look at these questions and say, I fall short. All of us fall short. And that's what they're meant to show you, that we fall short. Because out of that feeling of, I fall short, my sin is great, we begin to recognize our need. Which brings us on to the next point, and this is how do we get godly sorrow and repent from the right heart motives. Godly sorrow, godly repentance, comes from our need for Jesus. That's where it comes from. That's how we get that godly repentance. We have to recognize our need. Matthew 5, verse 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This recognition of your great need for God will inspire you to pursue a deeper relationship with Him. And ultimately, it will be in that deeper relationship where you will find the grace to overcome. That's how it works. Where you will find the grace to live the life He's calling you to live. If I can grab my paper here. There we go. We will never actually get to that place, though, unless we recognize how truly sinful we really are. We have to see how far our hearts are from God's in order to feel our need for Him. Peter's first response to the Lord Jesus was that he was an unworthy sinner. From the first encounter, Peter knew he needed saving because he saw himself compared to Jesus, right? He could recognize his own fallen state. Because of that, because he realized his need, he recognized that need, Peter leaned on Jesus in absolutely everything. And time and time again, you see him falling down and immediately posturing his heart right and turning towards the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? 
Well, wouldn't you agree, though, most Christians today would also say they recognize their need? I mean, how many Christians would say, I don't need Jesus? It'd be like saying, do you love Jesus? Of course we all say yes, right? Of course we all say yes. But remember, a fruit is always shown by its what? Or sorry, a tree is always known by its what? Beep. <laughs> by its fruit, right? It's all good. So a tree is always known by its fruit. If we live lives relying mostly on ourselves, it betrays our true heart. That we feel that we don't actually need Jesus. Right? Are we actually living for him? Do we truly rely on him in everything? Or do we think we only need him for salvation? Do we feel like maybe, you know what, Jesus, I know I need you then, but for now, I kind of hope you don't come back too soon because I'm kind of enjoying myself here. I can manage this. I'm having a good time. I could probably pull this off pretty much on my own. It's another one of those questions that examines your heart. I'm going to give you a couple examples so you can see how this whole thing works. Uh, when I first learned how to, to uh, ride bicycle, I used training wheels like most people do, right? Now, some don't, but most people do. So I used training wheels. And uh, the reason I used training wheels was because I couldn't balance my bike on my own. Makes sense, right? So I remember driving and stuff, and you're learning, and finally you get to the place where you want the training wheels off. And I remember my dad teaching me or taking the training wheels off, and then he was teaching me, so he would hold the back of my seat. And I still remember the first time where he said, hey, Steph, I'm not holding on. And I turned around like this and realized he was way back there. And I'm like, hey, hey, I can balance my bike. This is a good thing, right? Let me ask you something, though. Since I, now I could balance my bike on my own, I no longer needed training wheels. Do you think that I've ever relied on training wheels since that day? Never. Wouldn't that look weird on my big mountain bike? <laughs> Little training wheels. <laughs> it would be awkward, right? I'd be ashamed. So even if I did, I would never tell you. But, but you get the point. <laughs> and my point is this, right? When, when we live lives and we recognize Jesus says only a few make it to the narrow path. That's what he said. The great many are going to go down the path that leads to destruction. So when we live lives and we recognize that we're on a narrow path and we say, I can't balance this on my own. Jesus, if I, do, if I take this into my hands, I'm falling one way or the other. See, when you see that you need help in balancing your life, you then reach out and rely on Jesus so he can balance it for you. Do you see how that works? The second, though, you get to a place in your life where you think you can balance a piece of it on your own, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You will no longer rely on Jesus in that area of your life. And that'll just, that, that's a slippery slope that'll lead you to a place you never wanted to go. This is just how it works. It's cause and effect. The same thing happened to me when I first gave my life to Christ. Uh, a couple months after that, I got a job at Steinbeck Dodge. And I was very appreciative for the job. It was a good job. But I knew nothing about cars and nothing about sales and nothing about anything. So I didn't know how to do anything. So I felt right off the hop. I'm in way over my head. You know what that did? And I thank God for this. It created in me this desperate need for saving. Right off the hop, my wife will attest to this. I woke up every single morning. I was very disciplined and spent time with the Lord. I made sure I had a good hour, at least, to spend with him. You know why? Because I, I, I knew if I didn't lean on him, I was in over my head. I didn't have a clue of what I was doing. I was going to fall flat on my face. Right? But a sad thing happened. Eventually, I felt comfortable. Has anyone else here ever felt comfortable? Dangerous place to be, isn't it? Right? Eventually, I felt comfortable. My numbers were high. Right? I was comfortable talking to people and selling stuff. That seemed easy. You know what happened at the same time as this, as my comfort? My devotional life began to stink. It took me a number of years after that to try to get the discipline back, to get back in the Word, to recognize that I still needed Him. You see how this is? When you see your need for Jesus, you will rely on Him, you will obey Him, you will pursue Him in a relationship. But the second you don't think you need Him, you're going to put your faith and trust and you're going to pour yourself into whatever you think is your source of strength. And sadly enough, for most Christians, it ends up being ourselves. We trust in our strength instead of His. So what keeps us from recognizing our need for Jesus? Right? So we've talked about, you know, to get to godly repentance, we, it starts with recognizing our need. So what are the things that rob us from our need for Jesus? Revelations 3, 15 to 20. I know your deeds that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. And it says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is talking to a church here. He's talking to believers. The church of Laodicea. What was their sin that Jesus is so upset about? Their sin was they no longer recognized their need for Jesus. You see, he had given them a blessing of financial wealth. And they had taken that blessing and they had turned that blessing into an idol. It became their source of strength where they put their faith and trust. What was Jesus' response to this? He said that they were blind. Remember I talked about Judas being blind? The posture of his heart was off and he couldn't even hear the warning. Jesus is saying the same thing here. It blinds you. You're blind. And he says you're wretched. Right? You're pitiful. And then he warns them to repent or he will spit them out of his mouth. This is a stiff warning and a harsh words from our Lord and Savior to believers, isn't it? But you know, that's not even the saddest part. I mean, that's sad. But the saddest part of this passage is finding Jesus now knocking on the outside of a church, of the outside of believers' hearts, trying to get back in. Tell me how that's right. This is exactly what happens when we allow things into our lives, to, when we idolize things, when, we, when they take control or possession of our hearts. Right? We kick Jesus on the outside. He will not share your heart with anything or anyone. We see another story in the Gospels of something very similar to this with the rich young man that comes to Jesus, right? And Jesus tells the disciples that it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. In Matthew 19, you see the kind of the story unfolds, right? Rich man comes and says, how can I be perfect or how can I receive or inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, by obeying all the commandments. You can see that man thinking, well, actually, I'm pretty well off. I have no reason to steal. I have no reason to do these things. I have everything. I'm actually doing pretty good. I obey all the commandments. You see, but Jesus isn't fooled by outward appearances, is he? Jesus saw his heart. He could see the posture. He saw what his heart was set upon. And he says to the young, uh, to the young man, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And how does Jesus respond then to the disciples? He says to them, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? But listen to this. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus is using an old, old Jewish expression here, uh, uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Right? And they used to use that expression. It was an expression that meant it's impossible. That's what it meant. He's saying it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, some Christians have charged that Jesus didn't actually mean that it was impossible. He actually meant that it was just hard but doable. And their basis for this isn't what it says here. Their basis is a misinterpretation of Scripture. The first one starts, they said, well, in Hebrew, the word for camel can be translated also as cable or rope. Well, you have a big camel going through the eye of a needle, that's impossible. But a rope or a cable, that's much more doable, right? I mean, maybe you unravel it and, you know, pull a strand by strand and then one strand at a time, you fish it through, put it all back together. Difficult, but doable, right? The only problem with this argument is that the text isn't written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek. And you'll never guess what, what the Greek word for camel means. What do you think it means? Camel. Go figure, eh? So that argument we can chuck out, okay? The second one is, is they had these low passageways and gateways where you had to dismount and then you'd have to kind of crawl through. So, so they say one of these was called the eye of the needle, right? So when you'd get to these, these passageways, you'd have to take, unload your camel, you know, get everything to crouch down and like slowly get through and then you load everything back on, sit back on and you can go. Once again, difficult but doable, right? 
Now, the only problem with this argument is that they haven't found historical fact for any one of these passageways that's called the eye of a needle. And the thing is, even if they did, it would be irrelevant because everyone who heard Jesus at that time took him for saying it was impossible. That's why the disciples responded by saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus didn't say, well, well I mean, I, meaning it's just hard, guys. It's not impossible. No, Jesus responds by saying, with man, this is impossible, but through God, all things are possible. So what's Jesus' point here? What's he getting at? Is he saying that, you know, you know, he warns Laodicea that he's going to spit them out of his mouth because of, of their wealth. And then now the rich man, you can never enter heaven. Is Jesus' point, is he trying to say that if you have riches, if you have wealth, if you have possessions, that it will keep you from needing God and that keeping you from needing God will keep you from godly repentance and that will keep you from your promised inheritance? Is that the message that Jesus is trying to convey? No, that's not the message he's trying to convey. What does it mean to be a rich man? He's not referring to physical possessions. A rich man is anybody who allows things in their lives to become an idol. This is what it means to be a rich man. You can be very poor and have nothing and be this rich man. Right? It's very easy to idolize things. That's what it means to be a rich man. That's what he's referring to. Sadly, we see this all too often, even within the church. Jesus gets replaced in our lives with TVs, video games, vacations, comforts, you know, the latest fashions, you name it. The list can go on. All of these things that aren't inherently evil, they're not bad in and of themselves. But when they become an idol in your life, when they become the desire of your heart, when they become the motivating and driving factor of your life, you become the rich man. Matthew 5, 3 says, God blesses those who are poor, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Once again, Jesus is not talking about physical wealth. He's not saying that only those who own nothing can enter the kingdom of heaven. Because if that were the case, then we would all have to go sell everything, probably even our clothes. That would be awkward if we were to get into heaven, right? It's not at all what he's saying. He's saying those who are poor to the world, to this world, meaning they don't, they don't possess anything of this world. Their possession is their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says those who possess Jesus above all else, theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. You can be, a, you can be wealthy, you can have physical possessions and get this right. King David was a wealthy man. He made many mistakes, but he had this part right, didn't he? Right? He gets chased out of his kingdom. He's not concerned about riches. He's not concerned about his throne. All he's concerned about is what the will of God is. Right? If God has ordained it so, then, then so be it. Right? Constantly we see that throughout you know, David's life. Right? He's turning and it's more important to him what God's will is than what he receives. Whether he's a king soon enough or not, he can wait. Right? It's not about possessions. Picture your heart as a throne and this is going to help you really get this. How many seats are on a throne? One. Right? A throne is made for a king. Right? When we think about it. Now your heart has a throne in it as well. And it too is made for a king. And his name is Jesus. When we rely on ourselves or when we allow things in our lives to enter into that throne, we kick Jesus, our king, off of his rightful throne. That's not right. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's saying, you cannot have divided allegiances with me. I will not tolerate it. We say, why? What's the big deal? James 4, 4-5. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures say without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? What is James referring to here? Why did he just call them adulterous? What's the big deal about serving two masters? I mean, they befriended the world and now you're going to call them adulterous? Let me ask you this. What is, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom, right? Many times throughout scripture. The bridegroom. What is the church referred to as? The bride. Think about that. The picture of marriage between one man and one woman, that covenant relationship that they enter in together, where they will be sold out, you know, exclusively to each other, is supposed to picture something. It's supposed to picture God and his people. 
When we allow other things to enter into our lives and to enter into our hearts, and when we live for ourselves instead of living for the Lord, it is the same thing as though in marriage as if we were to invite someone into our marriage bed. That's the same thing. That's why James says, you adulterous people. Do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? How would we feel if we had a spouse that did this to us? That consistently brought other people into the bed? Would we be okay with that? Most certainly not. And neither is our Lord. He considers it the same as we would as the ultimate betrayal of trust. The ultimate violation. So how do we apply all of this? Where do we start? Right? I mean, we've talked about worldly sorrow and you've got to get the posture of your heart right or you're just going to feel bad for yourself. We've said that godly sorrow comes from recognizing our need and what keeps us from needing Jesus is when we think that we can live on our own and rely on things other than him, trying to serve two masters. How do we apply this now? Well, like I said, we'll never have godly sorrow if the throne of our heart is occupied by someone or something else. So repentance must begin here. It must begin at the heart level. To truly repent, what you are doing is really addressing the lordship issue of your heart. That's what you're doing when you repent. You're saying, I've been living for myself. I have been my own lord. Right? I've been making my own decisions. And I'm choosing to turn away from that and to turn to my new lord, Jesus. You are my lord. I will serve you and serve you alone. In a covenant relationship, this is what repentance is all about. So I'm going to give you four easy steps then, or simple steps. They're not necessarily always easy, but they're simple. The first one is we must confess allowing sin to come in between us and him. Right? Our sins have separated us from God. That's the first step. You must confess allowing that sin in your life to come between you and him. And then you must address the the issue of your heart, the throne in your heart. Anything, any areas where you have been relying on yourself or turning or trusting in wealth or trusting in people, Instead of trusting in God, you need to repent. You need to confess of those things and then to commit to turn back to the Lord. Okay, so the first one, confess sin and living for self. From here, we need to ask him to change our heart motives. You need to ask him to give you a heart of godly repentance. I'll tell you something, you can't get this on your own. This is not by works. It's going to only come through faith. You have to ask and be willing to follow. You can't fake this. Remember I talked about those, some of those gentlemen that I've dealt with with pornography where they've taken the steps but there's no heart change. You can't fake a heart change, can you? Right? I mean, I can stop some bad behavior for a time but I can't change this. So we ask him, okay? Ask for godly repentance and his grace to overcome sin. And remember, this is going to be a, this is going to be a process, it's in the beginning, you're going to find your motivations for turning from sin, most, for the most part, and this is, by the way, till we die, are often going to be selfish. This process of getting godly repentance right is a lifelong process. If you would actually get the posture of your heart right permanently, you would never sin again. Right? Because you would always be thinking of the Lord. You would always be doing everything for Him. So this is a process, okay? This is a process of working this thing out. So when you start, it's better to do the right thing for the wrong reason than to not do it at all. As long as we're not just doing that and saying that's good enough. Because that's sinful, actually. Right? We must, we must do the right thing and then come to him and say, God, I'm selfish. I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. I recognize that. Please forgive me and change my heart. Because I can't do it. But I want to pursue you. I want to set my eyes on you. See how that works? So we ask, okay? When I started learning about this kind, two kinds of repentance a year ago, this is exactly the process that God brought me on. Right, I recognized first that I was selfish for the most part all the time. And now I realize that I still am selfish actually in greater areas. But I've improved though, right? But, but I mean, it is what it is, right? And I began to ask him, God, give me your heart and give me your motives and your desires. Help me see this through your eyes. And he's been faithful in that and he's done that for me. And I found it, it's affected so many other areas of my life where I've been getting his heart for my family, his heart for other people, right? It doesn't just stop at sin. That's not what it's all about. It's just about getting his heart, okay? So we ask for that. Then, then we listen for any direction he may give us to turn from our sin, but more importantly, to turn to him. We have to get this right. What is the focus here? Is repentance focused on turning from sin? 
No. If your focus is to turn from sin in your life, I'll tell you already that you struggle with worldly sorrow. You need to repent of that as well. Okay? The focus must be to have intimacy and relationship with God. That's the focus, right? So that's my focus. Jesus turning to you is my focus. And in the process, I know that involves me now turning from all the sin in my life, from living for myself. So we listen for steps on both of those. How do I turn to you? How do I grow in intimacy? And how do I turn from sin? And lastly, we obey. Remember, this is not out of duty, but love. It says, if you love him, you will obey his commandments. So the rest is going to be a process of repetition, of daily continuing to make decisions, small and big, to choose to, to follow Jesus. Repentance, God, godly repentance isn't something you get and then you have for the rest of your life. It's something you do every day. You turn from your life and you turn to Jesus. You say, God, I want to be used for your kingdom. I want to live to glorify your name. I want to grow closer to you. I want to walk with you the way you walked with Adam and Eve. That's what it looks like. So remember to keep the goal in sight. And also remember that he desires an intimate relationship with you. And he promises he will give it to you if you're willing to forsake all else in your life. If you will forsake your life, you will find your true life in him. You will find yourself in him. And remember, in closing, remember the story of Peter. Peter should give each one of us great hope. I mean, the guy betrayed Jesus, put his foot in his mouth, always charged ahead, got it right, then went right back to getting it wrong. And yet we see how, how Peter's life, how God used him in the end anyways. Because Peter got one thing right. He had his focus clear, didn't he? Even when he made his mistake, the first thing he changed, it wasn't just turning from sin, it was to focus back on Jesus. He had his focus figured out. This is the same thing God wants from us. Ray's going to come up here now and he's going to lead us in a song. And uh, you're just going to stay seated, uh, seating, seated, stay seated. Seated. Again. It's okay. Probably need some water. That's it. So anyhow, you're going to stay seated, right? And uh, I just want to give you some background on the song so you understand where the heart of this is coming from. And uh, Zach wrote this song and he wrote it uh, based on the book of Malachi. And in Malachi, you had the Israelites and they're coming to the temple and they were worshiping God. They were offering their sacrifices. But they were living a dual life. You see, they would come to God and they would, you know, tell him how they were going to live for him and how they were going to sacrifice their best lambs to him. You know, they would worship like we do here. But then they would go out and they would actually keep the best for themselves. And they would only give God what was left over. And it says God was very angry at them. He was very angry at them. By the way, doesn't this sound like the church of Laodicea? Right? Here they're saying they need Jesus, but God saw through that. They didn't actually recognize their need, right? And it says God was angry with them, and he was going to pronounce judgment. And it says, a faithful few who feared the Lord, it says that they decided to come and to turn from their sins and their indifference and to turn to God. And this is what we're going to do now. So as, as Ray plays the song, I want you to meditate on those four steps that I gave you earlier. Confess any sin and any living for yourself that comes to mind. And then ask him, Ask him for, for a heart of godly repentance and ask him to give you the grace to overcome. And then listen for any steps that he has for you on how you can grow in intimacy with him and how, you can, and how you can turn from any sin. And then lastly, commit to obey. So I'm going to pray now and then we'll just start the song. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be like the church of Laodicea. We don't want to allow the things in our lives to rule us and to dictate to us what types of lives that we will live. God, we desire to live wholeheartedly for you. And we recognize that we don't live in such a way that we, that we show you that we truly need you. But we ask for your forgiveness. And I ask for a revelation in each one of us that each one of us would see how sinful we can actually be and how in desperate need we actually are. And then from there I ask that you would give us your grace. That you would humble us so that in our brokenness that we would turn to you. So that we could find life. God, we want to serve you and serve you only. Would you perform a work in us so that this could be done? 
In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that this is our desire. Our ultimate desire is to be pure in heart before you, to sow into your spirit, to draw close to you, to live the life that you've actually called us to. This is our desire. We acknowledge that we just fall so short. We acknowledge that our motivations are so messed up so often. And so we just acknowledge that before you. We ask for your help, for your strength, for one step to walk more closely in obedience. Thank you so much for your mercy that you reveal these things to us now on this side of eternity, that we may address them, that we may draw close to you, build relationship with you, that when we see you face to face, we will know you because we grew to know you here and now. So we ask you to continue to speak to us, continue to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.